0: Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 212. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me today is my second semi-permanent co-host, Mike Puck of Zega Financials. Well, Zega, uh, Zega, how you doing? Mike, how you doing today?
1: Doing good, Derek. Thanks for having me back on. It's been, uh, it's been an interesting week, so a lot to talk about.
0: Yeah, and I, I know you and I talked. We went back and forth. Like, are we going to cover the Silicon Valley Bank thing? Are we going to do it? Let's just do some stuff briefly and it, why not and so for anyone who's been maybe you know away camping in the in the Himalayas without internet and doesn't know that you know there's some bank issues essentially what what happened was you have silicon valley bank Sign- signature bank and silver gate bank and for different reasons all these banks i believe are in receivership, which means the FDIC comes in and takes it over. I I think that's the technical way of looking at it. And essentially what happens is, you know, banks, when they take in deposits, they do stuff with it and, you know, they can loan money out. They also buy assets. And a lot of times they'll buy treasury bonds, treasury bills, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, First Republic, I think they have municipal bonds. And like any other bond that's being held, as interest rates change, the value of those bonds go up and down. And banks do what's called they have available for sale or AFS and HTM, which is hold to maturity. And it it looks like from the reports, now I'm neither of us are bank analysts, and that's why we'll we'll try and be brief on this, but people want us to cover it. We've had some questions. So it looks like what Silicon Valley Bank did was they put a lot of bonds that had some duration to them. And, and by duration means if the bonds are longer in maturity, the longer in maturity they are, the more interest rate sensitivity or risk they have. And it looks like, you know, they were getting a lower rate of interest. Um, somebody was quoted as saying maybe around 1.7%. So interest rates went up and the bonds went down in value. And so they moved those over to the whole to maturity side, which is, I believe that is, permissible, uh, according to the regulations. So, all right. So then interest rates go up and they have these unrealized losses in bonds. Nothing. Most of you don't know if you're following the markets and, uh, you understand how bonds work. And it sounds like what happened was then if people start taking their money out and if their ratios go, go too high or people perceive it, well, now you're taking money out. And if enough people take money out, then in theory, you've got to sell some of the bonds to raise cash. Or you got to raise stuff. So that's kind of the, the story there. And Mike, the interesting thing too about mortgage-backed securities is, let's say a mortgage-backed security is a bond. And let's say, Mike, your, your mortgage and your mortgage alone is in there. And just like treasury bonds, they have durations and they have interest rate risk and things like that. But what happens is, as interest rates rise, mortgage backs, you know, mortgage bonds have what's called negative convexity, and, and that's a really fancy way of saying, you, know, think about it, if you have a mortgage, if rates really go up, you're not going to refinance. And so those bonds, or those mortgages or the bonds are you know, have packaged up, that duration is actually going to uh, get longer. And so it's kind of a a snowball effect. So I don't know. I mean, Mike, the the one thing I'll say is that the FDIC, and I'll link to this in the show notes, the FDIC puts out a quarterly uh, PDF, and they have the fourth quarter of 2022. They had, what is this, 39, quote unquote, problem institutions. To give you some perspective, 2012 was 651. And then they have the assets of FDI-insured, quote-unquote, problem institutions. Again, this is on the FDIC's website, and it's end of year since it's 2022. I don't know if they'll put this out at the start of April for Q1, but $47.5 billion was the assets at problem institutions. Mike, uh, Silver, Silicon Valley Bank was, what, $250 billion? So... I don't know, this probably wasn't on their problem list, right?
1: Yeah, it, it probably wasn't, and it doesn't look like it according to this. Um, you know, I, I think the looking at the quarterly uh, banking profiles here, we've really gotten a lot more efficient and a lot better, right, since 2012 and really the uh, 2008 financial crisis. Um, you've seen, you know, looking at the numbers, uh, and I know your listeners can't see this, but we've gone from 651 uh, problem institutions all the way down to thirty nine, like you mentioned. Um, so we've we've significantly gotten better. Uh, I think there's less problem institutions out there. But then you're right; you're looking at what is at risk here. And Silicon Valley Bank was probably too big uh, for for what could be at risk here. So you know they probably weren't on the radar of any of the, the troubled banks or troubled institutions uh, with with FDIC issues. But, you know, they certainly had an issue. And this was kind of a, a funny one when it comes to fixed income, right? So they didn't really have problems where they couldn't cover fixed income It's just or cover um, uh, bank accounts right away. It's just because of these long duration bonds in the portfolio and the fact that everybody needed money kind of immediately for payroll and for operations and um, especially in the tech and the uh, venture capital markets, which this bank uh, particularly serviced. Right? When, when all those people needed money and they needed it now to, to, for the operations on the daily capacity for their uh, companies, right? uh, Silicon Valley Bank didn't have it because it was locked up in these long duration bonds. So it, I think you know, we don't have to beat on it too, too much because it's just been talked about everywhere all week long and it's on every podcast and it's on every news station. But they really put themselves in a pickle here uh, with these long duration bonds,
0: yeah. And I would also say, I don't disagree with what you said, Mike, but there, people taking money out of the bank, the quote unquote bank run, definitely feeds on itself. And it's, it's kind of like a, a gym. Most gyms, I'm going I'm to over classify, I'm going to say quote unquote most gyms, not all gyms do this, but I think the, the business model of a gym is like, hey, let's just sign, we're not going to limit how many people sign up. Because we know that most people aren't going to show up and work out. Like if you go January 1st, January 2nd, a gym is absolutely packed. And the machines are all taken. And it's just, you go come, you know, May, June, July. And and there's tons. So like if everyone shows up at once, there's no machines. Maybe they have to wait to get in. It's the same thing. Like if everybody shows up at a bank at once and takes their money out, the bank doesn't have your money. And they only have to keep a certain amount. On reserve. And so I think that's part of it too. And their deposit base was, I think Schwab CEO came out and I'll link to that, Walt Bettinger, and he gave a, an interesting breakdown of how they look at their bank side versus the brokerage side, how they segregate the assets and things like that. But he made the point, and I, I could be misquoting Mike, but 80 or 90 percent of deposits at Schwab were covered by FDIC means. For single accounts, two two hundred fifty k and less, five hundred thousand less, where the deposit base at Silicon Valley Bank, I think it was a really low percentage were covered by FDIC, which means you had a a a number of people who were very large depositors, and if they start to pull their money out, but yeah, I mean it's kind of the gym example, right? I mean, imagine if everyone shows up who actually has a membership. Most people forget they even are paying it. They're like, oh yeah, I still pay eight dollars a month for Planet Fitness, like five
1: years later, right? Right. This is why you want to skip the gym in uh, early January and and go towards the end of the month. Um, But, yeah, so from what I've read, it was about 93 percent of the depositors were all above the FDIC insurance level. So you had really large accounts, obviously. Um, You know, I think that made a big difference. And like you said, when when you go and do a, uh, you know, take money out, uh, these were pretty big depositors that were pulling their money out.
0: So it will be interesting to see what happens going forward. I I heard somebody else on a podcast, um, a podcast called Value After Hours. And Tobias Carlisle made the point that it seems like all these bank closures or or seizures when the FDIC comes in, happens on Fridays, because then they have the whole weekend to sort of start to go through their, their normal process. And somebody reminded me too, when Washington Mutual failed, which I think is the largest bank failure ever. In 2008, none of the depositors were out any money. The equity, I think the equity went away or they got bought by somebody. But, you know, it's they kind of have that process down where they come in and they take over a bank. And so, but we'll see. I know First Republic has been in the news, some of the other banks have been in the news. I, I'm look, we're just sort of, I would say, tourists in this, Mike, you and I. I mean, we're not bank analysts. Uh, but if, you know, if you want to, you can go, to, go to the public bank financials, you can look at their balance sheets and stuff is right there, which is interesting because it was all in plain view for Silicon Valley bank. But anyway,
1: well, I would just say that, you know, for, for retail investors, cause we've had some questions from advisors and retail investors this week. Yes. Yeah. Talk about this. Yeah. So you know, we, and just questions about it and, and do they need to worry? I mean, I think that's one of the questions that we've had. And my answer was no, right, especially if you have under $250,000 in any bank, whether it's an online bank uh, because they have good savings rates or it's your local, you know, PNC or Bank of America. Um, And and I think everyone's talking about this, right? The larger banks seem to be better positioned than the regional banks. That's why you've seen less volatility there this week uh, as far as the bank sector goes. Um, But no, I, I don't think you need to worry about your deposits in the bank. You know, they've come out and said this, um, right? The regulators have come out and said depositors don't need to worry. Who does need to worry, though, right? It's the stockholders of Valley National Bank, the bondholders of Valley National Bank. Those are the people that, uh, you know, are probably not going to be made whole. Now, they took that risk on, right? When they bought that stock, they knew the risk that they were taking when they bought those bonds or they, they bought those maybe preferred stocks if they had those as well. Right or or just their uh, general stock. So you know th- those are the people that really took the risk here, not the depositors, and definitely not if you have you know hundred thousand dollars sitting in PNC or Bank of America. Right, that should all be FDIC insured, uh, and you shouldn't really have to worry about that. Um, it's it's the investors really that were put at risk here. So you know if you're a retail investor or you're an advisor that works with retail clients. And I think those, those are the answers that we've been seeing and kind of giving is, um, no, you know, if you're under 250 at a, at a big bank, you're probably fine. But who's at risk here is really the investors in some of these uh, smaller regional banks, uh, whether they're buying stocks or they're buying bonds.
0: Yep. no, I think that's right. And the other thing, too, is, you know, we always say buy and hedge. I mean, that's one of our core philosophies at Sega, and it's the idea of you buy you buy the market. You're long the market, and then you have hedges. So if if uh, you know the whole market is really moving materially down, the idea is you know we've got some floors in portfolios. I, Mike, I will put a because I, th- I think we'll move on from this now, but I'll put a link to Walt Bettinger, his appearance on CNBC from Schwab. I think he did a really good job of explaining how uh, and it's specific to them, but how brokerage assets work, work bank assets work, and and things like that. So we'll let Walt do the do the, uh, the heavy lifting there for us. So, uh, Mike, I do want to ask, are you a demagogue? Are you, uh, do you hate your, your country? All right. Well, let me tell you what I'm getting into here. I don't think so. (laughs) Well, you don't know what's coming here, but, uh, Warren Buffett has said, quote, when you are told that all repurchases, so he's talking about stock buybacks here are harmful to shareholders or to the country or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver tongued demagogue, uh, and in parentheses characters that are not mutually exclusive warren buffett february twenty seventh two thousand twenty two or two thousand twenty three um, in the wall street journal Mike are you a silver tongued demagogue? do you hate stock buybacks
1: <laughs> quite the quote from uh from Warren Buffett, so yeah. What do you think about that one? <laughs> so no, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm a demagogue, uh, but I, you, know, I think that talking to advisors and and clients is there's a lot of questions around dividends and buybacks and which one's better and should I buy high dividend paying stocks or should I should I buy companies that are doing buybacks? And one of the um, articles I was able to look at here was. Uh, for the first time, stock buybacks by companies in the S&P 500 are on track to surpass $1 trillion in a calendar year. Uh, and that was $220 billion by mid-February. So it sounds like starting off in 2023 is companies are doing quite a few buybacks. And it's just it's a little bit different than if you were to to buy a, a dividend stock or a company that's going to increase their dividend, right? You hear a lot about dividend growers, companies that are constantly increasing their dividends. There's plenty of those out there, but from what it looks like, is there's a lot of companies doing uh, stock buybacks here. And so, I, my question back to you, Derek, is just, you know, what's kind of the difference here? I mean, should we buy stocks that are doing buybacks or should we buy dividend stocks? What do you think?
0: All right, so I think it's. We got to get into what these are too, but I would say in, in investor preferences. If you need income, you can do that by getting dividends. You know, doing some things like uh, like we do with selling premium. Uh, maybe a combination of you know dividends plus premium, like in one of the strategies we run. But it, it comes down to investor preferences. Now, for an investor, when they get a dividend, that is taxed a, a certain way. When buybacks happen. Essentially, the company says, we're going to return cash to shareholders, but instead of sending people dividend checks, not that you really get a dividend check anymore, goes into your account. Instead, they're going to take some of their free cash flow and they're going to buy back their own stock. And what what does that mean? That means, let's say a company has a million shares outstanding and and they're going to buy back, oh, I don't know. I got to do some math here, uh, Five or 50,000 shares. So what is that? That's 5% of the, the float, right? So in that case, the company buys back shares. They reduce the number of shares. So if you own shares in the company, you now are sharing your quote-unquote share of revenue of earnings with less number of shares. So the value of the existing shares goes up. And in that case, although it's not paying a dividend, it has a quasi, you know, buyback yield of 5%, you know, a million shares outstanding and they buy. So I think it comes down to investor preference and the idea with buybacks, let's say a company doesn't pay a dividend, all they do is, is buybacks. Well, the investor then gets to decide when they realized that additional quote unquote benefit, because when they sell the stock... If it's a taxable account, you know they may trigger a, a, a taxable gain. So I think it just depends. I will say, Mike, you know the article you quoted. I think that was Zach's article, right? Correct. Yeah, Zach's Investment Research. Yeah. So they they say they're on pace to to buy about a trillion dollars worth of stock this year. Well, I'm I know you have a chart a, a, with that as well. I'm going to call a little bit of a I'm going to throw a penalty flag on that, and the reason is. Yes, a million dollar or a trillion dollars of share buyback sounds like a lot. But what we don't know is if it was 100 billion 30 years ago, what percentage of the market cap is that? So I think according to... What was the, the total market cap of the S&P? I think it's something like 32 trillion. I could be wrong on that. So if if your total... It could be, yeah. So let, let's round it to thirty-five trillion. So if you buy back a trillion dollars worth of stock, and your market cap was thirty-five trillion, you're, you know, round up. You're buying about three percent of your market cap back. And remember, just like you get to have a dividend yield, that would have a, a buyback yield of roughly, you know, three percent, right? So I think it's important to always put these things into perspective. But look, it's still a lot, right?
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> that is, that is a pretty big number again. The trillion number is always pretty big, but you're right. Comparatively to the market, um right, the market's a lot smaller than than that trillion number looks a lot bigger, right? But right now, like you said, 35 trillion we're rounding here. Um so uh, let me, let me keep reading here as I'm looking through this and, and why buybacks can be good, right? Is they and so there's three main points that they're cited here in this article. And, and, and I actually agree with these, um, demonstrating confidence in a business, right? So if you're thinking I would rather get a bigger dividend, well, a lot of times these companies aren't buying are are giving bigger dividends and what they're doing is they're buying stock back and that's demonstrating confidence, right? So that's one of the, the big reasons I think, right, is you're demonstrating confidence in your in your team, in your company, in the business. Um, so it's it's a positive look, a signal of strength and optimism uh, towards the business. I think that's one. Two is return of capital to shareholders. I think you'll dive more into this in a second here, but like you said, I and mean, if you have a million um, uh, shares outstanding and you lessen those shares right? Well, that's going to be usually good for the stock price, which you can get into the earnings per share and things like that, but just returning capital to shareholders. So um, that's going to give, you know, more money in shareholders pockets. And then third here was improving earnings per share and potential boost in price. And that's what I just mentioned, right? So because you have less shares outstanding, now you could get a boost in price, right, Derek? Is that how that works?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, i uh, do you want me to uh, go into an example you know and, and i think maybe that's uh so we we were looking at walmart why why walmart I, I don't know it doesn't matter you know it's not um we're not necessarily saying anything about walmart but walmart's interesting because you know in 2004 their shares outstanding were 4.233 billion in fiscal year ending in 2021 their share count was down about 35% to $2.751 billion. So they've reduced the shares outstanding in that company about 35% since, you know, 04 to, to, to 21. What is that? 17 years, if I'm doing my math correct. So what does that mean? Well, I did a little bit of math. They, Walmart earned in 2021 about $13.6 billion in net income. And last, so 21, their earnings per share was $4.97. You get that by taking the income divided by the, the shares outstanding. All right. Fantastic. But here's the thing. Imagine if they still had 4.2 billion shares outstanding. They had, you know, 35% more shares. Well, now that same income, you divide that by the old number of shares. And then the earnings per share would go from $4.97 to $3.23. So Mike, to your point, when you have less shares, the shares that remain are worth more because they are sharing, there's less people with their, their hand in the pot to share the, uh, the net income. So that's a benefit to shareholders. It's sort of returning capital to shareholders, but it's doing it in a different way. And give you a little, um, it, it, Walmart's interesting, by the way, because they've definitely bought back stock. Their PE last year at the end of, you know, for fiscal year 21 was 29.27. So the share price, 145 44 divided by 497 Mike, if, if you had the old share count, the PE would be about 45. So last thing I want to do is keep going number by number. But I hope that sort of explains, just using a real example, when you buy back shares, you're you know, all else equal, and it never is, but uh, you take your net income divided by the number of shares outstanding, and the less number of shares, the more per-share earnings you're you're seeing, assuming that the earnings are the same or going up, obviously, if they go down. So, yeah, Mike, I agree with Buffett here. I think this is, you know, because I, like, Free cash flow without explaining that. It's like if you own a coffee shop at the end of the year, imagine all you did was took cash in, you kept the cash in the cash register. At the end of the year, you have a bunch of cash in there. You could pay that out as dividends. You could buy new equipment, service stuff, you know, or you could buy back your own stock. And it's really what are you gonna do with your free cash flow? So, Mike, I mean, I think this is this has been good for people who are investors but I don't think it's bad. Uh, I'll get to maybe a way that it is bad, but um, I don't know, Mike, I I don't think this is bad
1: at all. So there, there's some, some real positives to the share buybacks. And I want to put that Walmart example in perspective, uh, looking at numbers, because that's, that's about 1.5 billion shares purchased back over that, what, 14, 15 year period. It's quite a few shares were repurchased there. Um, So You know, when you look at it, too, is is when you're buying back shares, there's a couple of things you don't have to worry about, right? A lot of times dividends, they're not very tax efficient, right? You're not a a lot of times. These are not qualified dividends. These are non-qualified dividends. So if you're uh, in a high tax bracket, you may want them to buy more shares back because it'll push your stock price higher and you don't have to pay any taxes uh, on extra dividend income that year. So unless, you know, obviously, unless you sell the stock and you take the game. But um, dividends can be not as tax-efficient at times, so buybacks can be better. Um, Also, dividend policy changes, right? So you you never know. They talk about this all the time. They're going to change how they tax dividends at some point. And, you know, again, you don't have to worry about this with buybacks. Um, So you're taking some of the investment risk out when companies are doing buybacks versus increasing their dividends. Um, And the other thing is when companies are healthy... You know, maybe they increase their dividend slightly, but they do a buyback, right? The last thing you want to see is they increase their dividend and then they decrease the dividend later because they're not as financially healthy. So I think they kind of insulate themselves by doing buybacks a little bit more hedging uh, internally, company wise, a- instead of just doing big dividend chunks uh, given out. So a um, couple positives there, I would say, for criticism though. So people against Buffett. Um, and then I want to get your opinion on this.
0: The un-Americans, Mike. The, the un-American people?
1: Right, <laughs> those un-Americans that hate America. Um, some criticism here is, well, why are companies buying back shares? Um, why don't they invest in new jobs? Why don't they invest in new growth um, uh, ideas or more research and development, right? I guess that's a, that's a good question, right? Is why doesn't the company just reinvest in itself? Well,
0: I mean, the the, the idea is that a company, if they're good stewards of shareholder and and capital, they should go where they can get the best return. And if the return on the capital is better served by buying back stock, then they should do that. They shouldn't just go out and buy another company or do a merger just because, you know, they don't want to pay a dividend, don't want to buy shares back. And so that's part of it. Like companies should do what earns the best return. And the idea that you're going to tell a company, hey, you know, buy more widgets, uh, hire more people, if that increases shareholder value, they should do that, and a lot of times when they look around they say, you know what we we don't really see a, as good of a, uh, a, a you know use of our free cash flow so um, Mike, do you have other ones that are negatives because I got a couple negatives we should talk about
1: um you know I think those are the big ones right is just um it is is really. Company
0: reinvesting. Well, what about timing? So this is the this is a criticism, and I think it's a valid one. When companies have a lot of free cash flow, they tend to be doing better. And when they're doing better, company share price ha- you know, typically will be higher. So Warren Buffett did say this, and he's criticized companies before. A lot of companies just buy back shares indiscriminately, and they don't buy it back when it's undervalued. They might be buying their own shares back when it's overvalued. And the other part of this is, When you look at, I don't have a chart in front of me, but the the amount of buybacks per year, 2008, 2009, companies stopped stopped buying back their shares. It would have been like, oh, wow, the stock is like trading at five times earnings. We should buy back as many shares as we can. But they didn't. And part of it was because the economy, part of it is, you know, if you're a a CFO, CEO, you're probably protecting your cash position. But... Like that—that's one of the things too. And Buffett has said that in the past. Like companies don't always buy their own shares back when it's "quote unquote" undervalued, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, some of the other criticisms include you know, executive compensation, right? Might benefit from regular regular employees as well. So, um, you know, there's there's we could say the haters, like you said, like the American haters. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, there's a few criticisms. But again, I think it shows strength in the companies. Um, and if I'm, I'm thinking about uh, uh, dividend investing particularly, because I think that's where these share buyback questions come up the most. And um, I, there's a couple dividend stocks I thought about in, in in Mike when I first started in my career. And you these may ring a bell, um, uh, Derek. So I, I don't know if you heard a company, anally Capital uh, was a big one. Anybody that was investing in 2010, 11, 12, that was a big one. And Prospect Capital, those were big dividend payers, 14 15 16% dividend payers, and they would never do uh, buybacks. And again, these are companies that would pay big dividends, but their stock price would go down every year. So just because a company pays a big dividend doesn't necessarily mean it's a great place or a great company to invest in, right? Just a lot of times it shows there's high risk there. So if I'm thinking as an investor, where do buybacks come in versus my regular dividend portfolio, I'm thinking, hey, I want a company that pays some dividends and does some buybacks at the same time.
0: No, I don't I don't disagree and and we can use uh, I'll go into Apple and I'll also look at Walmart. By the way, this stuff is available on the cash flow statement. So when you go into the cash flow statement, uh, I think it's under investing activities, you'll see repurchase of stock, issuance of stock, and you'll see dividends. So it's right there in the company financials you can kind of see what they're doing. And Walmart, in two thousand twenty one uh, if I read the 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 sheets correctly the the cash flow statement, they paid about six point one billion in dividends. They spent about six point five billion in net uh, net share. so basically you take repurchases minus any issuance, and that's kind of how you do it. I think Walmart actually issued some shares for it doesn't matter the reason. But I mean that's that's twelve point six billion, and what does that mean? Well, their market cap was uh, was I think I had it like roughly four hundred billion dollars. Their market cap. So just like when you do a dividend yield, you take the amount of dividend divided by the market cap, and you can do both of those on a per share basis, which is what most people are more used to. I estimated that the dividend yield was roughly you know one6 percent. And the buyback yield is the amount of stock that you purchase into the market cap was about 1.6. So all told, Mike, I mean, the total, I'll call it an augmented yield or buyback plus dividend yield was roughly 3.2% if my numbers are right. So to your point, I mean, I think you look at both of these and it's just a, it's, it's another way to return capital to shareholders. And I think to me this should be publicized more. Like this whole, this total yield, dividends plus buybacks. There are screens that do it. There are sites that do it. I mean, you know, you can look at these these statements of cash flows and, and work it out. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you Apple too, just so the the listeners have an idea. Apple in uh, uh, last year did eighty nine point four billion in stock buybacks. And 14.8 billion in dividends. So they're definitely more on the buyback side. But that is a return of capital to shareholders. So yeah, I mean, to me, I, I don't mind either. And if I'm a if I'm someone who needs income, maybe I shade the other way. Although here's the thing: if you need income, you can always sell some shares. You know, that you don't have to just get dividends. So yeah, I think this is an under understood. Does that even make sense? Can I say that? It's, it's a misunderstood area of finance. And I think, especially when the politicians get involved and they have no idea what they're talking about, um, this is, to me, just another return of capital. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think we beat this up enough. Any other thoughts, Mike?
1: Yeah, just I, I thought it was interesting, you, you know, you said to look for companies or there's screeners out there that look for companies that are dividends plus buybacks, Right. i think there's, there's probably plenty of retail investors out there that just look for dividends and so this is kind of a little bit of a nuance or a different way to look at it is yes dividends are important but look if you're looking for companies th- that are paying dividends and doing buybacks uh, you know there's those screeners probably are pretty good and it just again i think you find the stronger companies that are doing both versus some of these just high high dividend payers so um, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. And I, I think, you know, they're both positive, uh, especially if you get a company that's growing their dividend and doing buybacks right consistently. Um, that's got to be on the positive side, too. So, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's another dynamic to think about when you're thinking about dividend stocks. It's not always about the dividend. Look at the buybacks as well, because that's going to tell you a lot about the financial strength of the company um, and where they're going in the future.
0: Yeah, and by the way, you you mentioned early on you were spot on about talking about the S and P 500. If people own the S and P 500, I mean you don't have to look at anything. You have this. Some companies are buying back. Some people are paying dividends, and you know it's in there. The the stock based compensation. I'll just touch on that real briefly. There are. I'll try and link to an article. Uh, some of the tech companies they have, they're diluting. This is what what the thought is. They're diluting existing shareholders. When they issue a ton of uh they grant a lot of stock options or stock based compensation because a lot of times they have to issue stock then to it's sort of this I don't want to get into it it's 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 an it's explaining stock based compensation is a much longer podcast maybe we'll cover that in a in a future time, but that is one of the knocks on it and uh I think Facebook might be one of the companies where there's an article about how much stock based compensation there is so all right, let's, let's put that to bed. Uh, Mike, I did want to mention that it was interesting. I don't think it was you, and I don't know if it was when Jay is on, but maybe I said it off air. I noticed that the discount window had a, a little bit of an uptick and just some odds and ends I want to cover. Last week, in billions of dollars, the discount window borrowing reaches an all-time high. This is non-inflation adjusted. So I'm going to throw a flag on this chart as well because it says it's bigger than 2008. The discount window is when a bank borrows money from the Fed. It's in theory, you know, a banker walks down to the Federal Reserve building, knocks on the the window and says, hey, I need a loan. So that's the discount window. Fed funds is when Feds borrow, uh, banks borrow from one another. But I saw a little bit of an uptick in this and I, I just kind of Sometimes I see this stuff and I say, oh, that's interesting. wonder what that is. And then lo and behold, uh, you know, we have this, <laughs> this bank blow up. But, uh, you know, not everybody's watching the discount window. Yeah.
1: My my question to you is the discount window. How often does it get used, right? Is that something that that happens frequently where banks go down and borrow money from the Fed? Or is that something that's very rare? It's
0: it's pretty rare. I mean, if you look at from probably mid 2009 2010 through until you know the 2020 covid uh, market sell off there really wasn't much discount u- window usage you saw it in 2020 where where banks uh, went to the window and then you saw it start to to creep up towards the end of you know in, in 22 or so so yeah mike it's not it's not that common and and one of the reasons is the theory is banks don't really want to use the discount window because it kind of portrays weakness. They'd rather get financing from other places. But um, but yeah, and this is you know like you can go to Fred, uh, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and, and they've got a chart on there if you if you want to watch this. But yeah, I don't know. Other thing, Mike is uh, oh the other thing that's it's overdone is are we in a recession? Are we going to have a recession? It's like, all right, enough of it. But I will say the Conference Board U.S. leading index of economic indicators, uh, it's still indicating what typically would be a level prior to or in a recession. So I don't know, Mike. I mean, I've said publicly it's I, I wouldn't be surprised if in nine months the National Bureau of Economic Research comes back and says, yeah, you already had a recession, but I, I don't know what to do with this. Do you?
1: Right well I've said this before on the podcast and I'll I'll say it again that the the technical definition right is two quarters of negative GDP
0: No 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 that's not that's not the tech they the, you've got a conference committee that that meets and tells us when a recession is Mike do not do that definition
1: <laughs> That's that's true I know it's getting confusing at this point but <laughs> at least historically right it was the two negative quarters of GDP with the um with negative unemployment spiking, right? So uh, an unemployment number is going up, but you know, we still, we don't see that. We're still not seeing the the spike in unemployment, but you know, there are quite a few layoffs. We've talked about it uh, in the past on the podcast, Facebook did another 10,000 employees uh, this week and took another 5,000 jobs off the the market for looking. So, um, you know, you are getting some layoffs at least in some capacity uh and but i think you know they're predicting slight
0: gdp growth is that right yeah i mean the the federal reserve bank of atlanta which has the gdp now i think their q1 their nowcast is something like 3.5 percent growth uh we'll see when it all is said and done i mean that the nowcast takes every bit of data that comes in and just keeps looking at it but yeah mike there's growth projected at least q1 yeah
1: so i think that's another confusing part to it right is um and and they're gonna tell us later right they never tell you hey we're in a recession today they always tell us you know nine months from now hey you were you were in a recession back in March." so we'll see what happens but i i know the um the numbers are kind of i would say uh teetering on which way we go right now so uh, we'll know in the future but as of right now i don't know it feels a little recessiony to me is that a word Recession y, is that a word? Re- recession y, I think I created that.
0: Um, Sounds like a deodorant for men or, or uh, you know, a <laughs> cologne, recession y. <It's, laughs>
1: recession y, right. It feels a little recession y. Yeah, it could be cologne or the markets. Um, but still uncertainty, right? The market hates uncertainty. And I think that's what you're seeing this week with all the volatility is whenever there's uncertainty, there's lots of market volatility. So um, whether recession or not, we'll know soon. At some point in the future, they'll tell us. But, um, a lot of uncertainty either way.
0: By the way, just as an aside, we did not have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth in 2001. Uh, Q1 in that recession, yeah, Q1 was negative 0.32%. And then Q3 was negative 0.40, uh, 0.4%. But Q2 was positive. Positive 0.6%. So, no, we've had recessions where you didn't have two consecutive quarters. It's the people who meet in the room. They tell us later. That's the people, the official one. But we did have it in, in 08, by the way. Yeah, so Q3, Q4, Q1 of 09, Q2 of 09. Yeah, that was like four consecutive quarters. Um, but, yeah, that, no, and I know we had the two the two consecutive. Oh, we did have the two. Yeah, we did have two consecutive in, in Q1 and Q2 of, of 2022. Mike, other things I know we kind of saw we wanted to, to touch on is, you know, it, you keep seeing it's like, well, all right, so here, here's what I was looking at. The SPY lured, lured in, lures in, I guess is the word, 7.3 billion into the ETF. So the, the headline was, cash pours into world's largest ETF following bank rescues. This was, I think, the most in a weekly fund flow for SPY. I mean, this only goes back to 2020. Like, it's uncanny that people, I mean, do, do you think people got out first and they came back in? Or like, it's like people get bearish when the market's down and people get bullish when the market's up. Like, I don't know. But this is a lot of money that came into SPY. I don't know what it means. It's just interesting. That's all.
1: Yeah, so year to date, I think this is this is an interesting number, and I'm just looking at SPY, right? So the 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 ETF that tracks the S and P 500, and I'm just looking at year to date performance, and we're actually up 2.4 percent still on the year. So, you know, remember all this negative talk, and all the banks are going out, and and you know they're having all these problems. And are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? Um, do we feel recession-y, Right, my my new word. Um, <laughs> We're still up almost two and a half percent on the year, right, for twenty twenty-three. Now that that might not mean anything. Um, you know, there's plenty of other things we can look at, right? January was positive, and usually if January's positive, the year's positive. You know, maybe that means nothing this year. I don't know. Um, Jay talks about this quite a bit, right? The third year of election cycle, the market's usually up um 90.5% of the time. So there's a lot of statistics to look at, but I think regardless of, of what's happening and some of the turmoil and uncertainty is we're still up around 2.4, 2.5% on the year. Kind of interesting uh, based on everything that's happening.
0: Oh, I agree. I mean, you know, this is why it's so tough to try and time this stuff. And here's another data point, And this is the S&P performance one year after rate hike cycle began. So I, I have a little bit of a problem with this chart I'm looking at. but And what it says is March of 88, February of 94, June of 04, December of 16, and then March of 23. So what it's saying is one year prior is when rates started to be risen. And in all those cases, the market was up a year later from the start of the rate cycle hiking, and we're down in March. Uh, I, the problem here is it doesn't say the magnitude of rates. It doesn't say how many times they raised, were they still raising a year later? So, but I don't know, maybe, I don't know what this I do with this, Mike. Do you know what to do with this? I don't.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's just funny, right? Because what it's saying here is as they start raising rates one year later, the market is higher. Uh, that's happened in 88, 94. um, I don't know if you quoted the years, but 04 and, and 2016 too. So, and there's just not in 2023, right? We're still negative comparatively. So um, yeah, some weird things are happening. I would say, I guess this was what it tells me, right? It's just not the norm is not happening. You know, we usually hike rates when you're later, the market's higher and that's not the case this year.
0: By the way, I think the dates, I, I forget where this is from. Um, that there's no There's no identifying mark on this chart that somebody sent me, but- it says March of 23. I think that should be March of 22. Because I, I remember the February 94 raise. That's when Greenspan surprised the markets out of nowhere. And was like, yeah, we're going to raise rates because we're going to show the Fed's in charge. We didn't have inflation back then. That was a surprise. But anyway, the other thing I'll just mention is that the move in rates this, this week was massive. And what I mean is, if we look at the yield on the two-year bond, so the two-year treasury bond. And start of the week, you know, it was right around five. And then it was, you know, it went all the way down. And this chart, which is from Bloomberg and Deutsche Bank, has other times when the daily basis point changed. So that's the how much did interest rate change on in a daily basis. And our move this week, which was a lowering of the yield of the two-year, was similar to the great financial crisis of 08, 9-11 in 01, and Black Monday in 1987. I don't know what this means, but you know, when you get rates that change that much, it's you don't know what it means until you know what it means. But I just thought this was really interesting. Like last week was the same move in rates as 87. Kind of crazy, huh?
1: yeah i am looking at it too and and you're right these these big moves and these are two-year rates right yeah two-year government bonds so right black monday 9 11 great financial crisis and then now (laughs) then march 13th and march fifteenth. so these are big moves um i guess if you look at what happened in the other three times right you have the the market really negatively impacted um that doesn't seem to be the case this week right i mean i guess we could see what happens to follow in the coming weeks but all these uh well black monday right the market was a great buying opportunity um and i guess on a positive side right all of these times were great buying opportunities once we bottomed out so um maybe that's what this is telling us right here is that is we had this big negative move and it's a good long-term buying opportunity for equities
0: we'll let people know whether it's a good buying opportunity or not in a year we'll tell you if it was good or not has that because neither of us <laughs> that's the thing mike and i don't know what's going to happen to markets it's really tough but, yeah, I mean, it's sort of been an up-and-down week uh, this week, and, you know, we'll see. All right, um, one other thing I wanted to to mention. What did I want to mention? I can't remember it now, so. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. One other thing I think, all right, just one extra quick point on the banking crisis. Are they going to raise FDIC limits to infinity now? Like, what? what happens here and isn't fdi cuz banks i believe are the people who pay for the fdi insurance fdic insurance like there's they pay the premiums between all the banks like if you raise fdic insurance to infinity like doesn't the cost for that insurance go up like what are we doing here going forward i don't know a little bit of moral hazard here
1: i saw that i saw that and so um i i said this earlier on this podcast right is 93% of Silicon Valley banks deposits were over the FDIC limit, so it's kind of funny how they they're, they just jumped right on it. But I think they're trying to prevent a, a major crisis from happening or kind of a trickle down into other banks. Um, yeah, I, you know, we'll see what happens. You're right; all the banks pay into um, the kind of the FDIC insurance fund, um, and yeah, if, if they increase the, the levels, and maybe they should. Right? Maybe they're a little behind the. The eight ball here, maybe they should raise it to 500000 or a million dollars.
0: But we all pay for that anyway, because if the insurance costs go up, then aren't fees going to go up or services go down or what you get in? I don't know how this all works. I just think it's like, okay, now that you've done this, don't they have to do it the next time? And so do FDIC limits even matter if they're going to come in and and just you know take, and maybe it depends on why. Maybe that's the thing, but I don't know. I don't know what precedent this set and I don't know what it means going forward, but I'm like somebody at some point needs to tell me what this means for the FDIC limits and maybe we won't get that, but we'll see. Anything else on that, Mike, before you go recommend, give me a recommendation for the audience. I know last time, did you have any like drywall work done? Did you get the lawn done? Cause last time you gave like your air conditioning repair company, which is I'm going to send them a bill for the, uh, uh, for the advertisement. For sure,
1: you know I did, and and I actually told them too. When I had my um, uh, my like quality checkup call, like a couple of days later, I'm like, "Hey, I mentioned you on a podcast," and they were laughing at me. Um, but this this week, I'm excited. Uh, I just saw season three came out. Uh, Ted Lasso uh, just came out. I think it was this week, right? It's on Monday, so I haven't seen any of the episodes yet of season three, but I'm um, excited to to watch it. So Ted Lasso is definitely my recommendation. The first two seasons were great.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, that was actually going to be one of mine. So you stole mine, but i let you go first. So it's only fair. Yeah, what a great show. I did watch the episode already and it was good. It was good. I hope though, so I guess they were doing a press tour and I think I read that they, the press was told not to ask them if they're going to do a season four. And he's always said, he kind of always had like the idea of, you know, the story is written on, on an arc for three seasons. But if this is Apple TV's, you know, top hit, you got to believe that they're going to, you know. I mean, look, they had $89 billion available for uh, for buybacks. Why can't, can't they throw some of that money <laughs> Ted Lasso's way, right? So
1: what are the criticisms, right, of, uh, of the buybacks? Here Now we're, now we're the criticizers of buybacks. <laughs> it's a great show, definitely lighthearted, and I, I recommend it for anybody.
0: Well, look, if, if spending the money for Ted Lasso season four is a good – a good investment and a better return on capital than buybacks, then they should do that. This is how this works. I don't know how much it costs for Ted Lasso, but no, I, I agree. I really, uh, that's, that movie is, uh, is tremendous. All right. I'm going to go into the archives. Uh, I, the town was on one of the streamers with, uh, Ben Affleck. Um, is Matt Damon's in that too. No, no, uh, Jeremy Renner, Jeremy Renner, Ben Affleck. That is, that is a, yeah, that's a really good movie. And it's one of those when you tell people and they're like, what's the town? And I'm like, just watch it. it it's it's very violent. A lot of, you know, but it's about a, a, a group in Boston who are very, you know, the, the people you'd expect to see on the South side of Boston. And there's some robberies involved. There's some, some stuff like that, but it's a really good cast. So, all right, good. You, you approve of that one as well.
1: Great movie. Yep. seen it many times. Yeah,
0: watch with the fa- watch Ted Lasso with the family. Watch the town, you know, on your own. It's uh, a little bit of violence there, but that's all right. All right, Mike, I think we've uh, we beat this in, up enough. Uh, the audience at this point is uh, hopefully understanding of buybacks and what those are. And I'll tell you what, it is it, it continually become you know is a misunderstood area of finance. So. I encourage people to, to read a little bit more about that. And, uh, maybe ne- next time you come on, Mike, you'll give us a, uh, uh, like a, a washer and dryer company that, that you can, <laughs> as well, or something like that. But Mike, thanks for coming on again. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on Derek. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon.
0: All right. Thanks everyone.
1: We'll talk to you next week.